Let me pray for us. God, we praise you and we are glad to be gathered together for the sake of your name, to give you glory and to be drawn to you through the proclamation of your word and um, through hearts of praise and through fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask that you would bless this morning, be with us, move and work in our hearts. Um, God, we do indeed thank you for mothers. Um, What a beautiful thing to come out of the mind of God, motherhood. And we we look from our mothers back up to the, the source and origin of motherhood itself, to God who made this beautiful thing. And we thank you for that. And we pray for the mothers in this room, God, that you would equip them to be good mothers, to drink deeply from your grace, that they might give grace liberally in their families. And God, I ask that as we talk about your church this morning from your word, um, that you would give us a, a greater, deeper understanding of what it means to belong to the body of Christ, that we would not take our membership among the citizens of heaven as something to be understood lightly, um, but I pray that it would have gravity and weight and that we would see just the, the blessing that we have to be able to belong to the bride of Christ. And so would you do that work in our hearts this morning for Christ's sake. Amen. So open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 28. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we love to give our Bibles away. There is a little welcome table in the back of the room over here where we have Bibles. And if you don't have one, you can take one and you can keep it. We would love for that to be our gift to you. We're going to read Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 9. We've been making our way through Genesis, and slowly but surely, we are cruising along. So pick up with me in verse 1 of Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, And take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and God gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, Besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. All right, so the purpose of this text is pretty obvious, I think. The theme here is marriage, and the verses give us a picture of contrast. We've been doing this a lot through Genesis, where we get one character and another character contrasting each other. We find that Jacob is being sent to the homeland of his family, particularly his grandfather Abraham, 
to take a wife who is not of the land of Canaan. And that's contrasted with Esau, who although he takes an additional wife from the lineage of Abraham, still ends up marrying a woman who is thoroughly Canaanite. Did you notice that? Esau attempts to do something to please his mother and father. He's making an effort at kind of people-pleasing, but he doesn't go to the extent that Jacob is willing to go. Traveling all the way back to the land of his ancestral origins with Abraham, the land of Haran, to find a wife who is a foreigner to Canaan. Instead, Esau tracks down a descendant of Abraham, which is a start, But this is a woman who was born and raised in the land of Canaan, being a daughter of Ishmael. Now, if you know anything about immigration statistics, then maybe you're aware of the fact that when somebody immigrates from one country to another country, by the third generation of their children, they have become thoroughly assimilated to this new land. That third generation no longer sees themselves as being uh, from a different country. And so while Esau gives the impression that he cares about the wishes of his parents, trying to avoid a woman of Canaan, he ends up marrying a woman of Canaan, even though she is a descendant of Abraham. And so we see Jacob loosely following in the footsteps of Isaac, his father, and Abraham, his grandfather, remaining distinct from the land of Canaan, carrying on this call of Abraham to live in this land but not necessarily be of this land, while Esau goes the other direction, basically embraces a Canaanite identity and only half-heartedly cares about the way of Abraham. Now, this passage nicely sets up two things for us. First, it's going to set up the next conflict that's going to take place in the story when Jacob goes to Haran and interacts with Laban and ends up marrying his two wives. That's going to happen in the chapters that follow. But secondly, if we were to continue to read, and we're not going to do this in our study of Genesis, but if we were to continue to read and we were to get to the story of Exodus, we would find there the conflict between the descendants of Esau, who are called the Edomites, and the descendants of Jacob, who are called the Israelites. And we would see this conflict between these two brothers continue. But I want to do something totally different today, okay? We're going to use this passage, and we're going to start here and launch from here into um, a totally different topic. We're going to talk about the church. And you might wonder, like, Grady, how in the world do you get from this passage to talking about the church? Fair question. But it's actually a very natural transition, I think. In verse 1, and it's repeated later, Jacob I'm sorry, Isaac tells Jacob that he must not take a wife from among the Canaanite women. And now, if you'll grant me that in the Old Testament, Israel functions as a kind of analogy for the people of God that are supposed to be set apart, and Canaan and the Canaanites function as a kind of analogy for worldliness, syncretism, assimilation, temptation, then I think our transition to talking about the church is really quite simple. Jesus is the Son of God, and Scripture teaches us that Jesus is wed to his bride, the church. 
And it's God's intention that the bride of Christ would be different, distinct, free from worldliness in all of its various forms. And so then we can say that the bride of Christ, the church, which God has selected for his precious son, must be like a stranger in this world of sin and evil. Like Isaac said to Jacob, it's almost as if we could hear an echo of God the Father saying to God the Son, you must not take a bride from among the Canaanites, a bride who has assimilated to the worldliness of this community. You must not be wed to a bride who is like the people of this world. See where I'm going with this? And so Jesus has set himself to the work of getting for himself a bride who is pure and distinct, a bride who is different from the world around her. And that bride is the church. Or maybe we could say it one other way that kind of connects to this text. Jesus, just like Jacob was on a mission to get himself a bride who was not from the land of Canaan, Jesus is on a mission to get for himself a bride that brings honor and glory to his father, his heavenly father, God. So I want to talk about the church, the bride of Christ, this bride that Jesus has taken for himself. Because one thing that sincerely, deeply grieves me as a pastor is I find that too few Christians today have a biblical view of what the church really is. And I hope to kind of offer to you a more biblical picture of what the church actually is. Christians talk a lot about how God loves people individually. But I'm not sure that we talk enough about how God loves his bride collectively, especially. God loves the body, his church. God does love people individually. That's absolutely true. But he also loves this thing called the church in a very special, particular way. And so my sermon this morning is going to be an exposition of what the church is. And my prayer this week has been that this will challenge you and encourage you to grow and really treasure and appreciate what it means to be a part of the church, to belong to the body of Christ. And I'll be honest with you, friends, this this probably should be like four sermons But we're stuck in Genesis, and so I've had to cram it into one. And so my apologies ahead of time. Forgive me for that. But let's begin with what the church is not. The church is not of this world, and therefore the church is not a club that you belong to. The church is not a casual group that you are loosely associated with as a Christian. The church is not a human institution or a corporation It's not a membership that you might belong to like Amazon Prime. That's not what this is. The church does not belong to people. And it is not something that we make according to our own preferences or our own ideas. The church does not exist to affirm the feelings or thoughts of individuals. That's not why we're here. It's not here for you or me to nitpick or even really to shop around until we find the place that's a really perfect fit where we can be sure that these people are going to make sure all of our needs are met all of the time to make us feel happy and fulfilled. 
The church does not belong to you. The church does not belong to me. We do not invite the church to like have the privilege of taking care of us and serving us. Rather, we are invited into the privilege of laying down our lives to serve the church, to serve the bride, and to serve the groom, Christ himself. So turn with me to Ephesians 5. Let's read this real quick. And then this will sort of frame everything else that we talk about. Ephesians is toward the back of your Bible. In Ephesians chapter 5, pick up with me in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul is teaching about marriage. He's telling us about how marriage should operate based on the relationship of Jesus, the groom, to his bride, the church. But I want to use this passage as a starting place for us to discuss what exactly the church is. And most fundamentally, these verses help us understand that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride which God has chosen to give in union to his beloved son in an everlasting covenant. So I've given you a handout this morning. If you don't have one on your seat, we do have plenty of extras. Um, so feel free to get up and move around till you grab one. I do encourage you not to share this with your spouse or whoever's next to you for two reasons. One, the font is like 10 because I had to squish it into one page. And second, because you should keep this in your Bible. But I've got a quote on here James from James Bannerman in his monumental book, The Church of Christ. He says, The scriptures assure us that there is a church which is the holy bride of Christ, united to him in an everlasting covenant, a society which he calls his spiritual body and of which he is the exalted head, a community described as a temple of the Holy Spirit, the members of which are lively and spiritual stones in the building. That's a beautiful description of the church. But to say that the church is the bride of Christ is really only the starting place. There's a whole lot more that could be said about what the church is than merely the fact that she's the bride of Christ. Calling the church the bride of Christ just scratches the surface of the meaning and depth and complexity of this thing that we belong to as fellow brothers and sisters, children of God. 
Sort of like saying that Leanne is the bride of Grady only begins to scratch the surface about who my wife is in the totality of her being. There's much more that could be said about Leanne. So I prepared this handout for you today. We're going to actually very quickly walk through all of this together and meditate upon this incredible thing that we get to be a part of, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. And again, I hope that you'll keep this thing in your Bible. I hope that you'll come back to it from time to time. Uh, in fact, I hope that maybe you'll add to this. You'll see that... Um, I've put Bible verses here to kind of support the different things that I'm going to say. Uh, for your sake, I'm not going to touch on every one of those Bible verses or we would be here till next week. But maybe you in your personal reading come across additional Bible verses. Or maybe as you read your Bible, you realize, man, Grady just barely got all of the things on here. There's way more that needs to be added to this piece of paper. But I think a lot of people think that church is where you spend some time in a service on Sunday morning. And I hope to help us understand that there is much more. So, starting with the fact that the church is the bride of Christ, it means that the church belongs to Jesus. Probably, as we think about marriage in our very modern time, we don't think of this idea that a bride belongs to the groom. That probably sounds patriarchal or you know, oppressive. But the Bible speaks of marriage in this way. That a bride belongs to her husband, and actually it goes the other way too, that a husband belongs to his wife. We are not our own, but as husband and wife, we belong to one another. And just as the man is the head of the wife, so Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and the church belongs to him. It is his to nourish and to love, to lead and to guide. The church does not belong to people. It doesn't belong to pastors. The church does not belong to congregations or denominations. The church belongs to Jesus, which means that the church then submits to Jesus Christ and no one else. The church does not submit to popes or kings or presidents or multinational governing bodies like the UN or something like that. It doesn't even submit to parachurch organizations that come alongside of the church to maybe resource it. The church has one master, and that master is Jesus Christ. He rules and reigns not only over the universe generally, but he rules and reigns over his bride, the church particularly. And as his bride, we, the church, exist for the praise of his glory. That's why you are here. You are here to honor him. We are here to make his name great. We are not here to usher in some kind of utopian Christian society through politics. The church does not exist to bring greater social justice to earth or to build little enclaves of Christian happiness or personal empires through denominations or big churches or particular congregations, we, the church, are here to bring glory to Jesus, to magnify his name, to proclaim his excellency here in Maricopa and among the nations. 
And we're here to glorify him through our spiritual victories, which we will have, and also through our earthly sufferings, which we will have. We're here to honor him through our worship and through our obedience. We're here to lift up his name through our unity and also our humility. And because we exist for his honor and for his glory as the church, then we must be pure. We are a bride who is not to play the whore, not to chase after other less glorious lovers, giving ourselves over to them. We've been given to Christ as his bride that we might stand before him spotless and radiant, living in the holiness that he has given us as we honor our king who redeemed us. And as we live out that purity and we show forth his glory, we do that doing the works of Jesus Christ, which he commanded his bride to do in the scriptures. Let me say again that the church does not exist that people might feel better about themselves. No, the church exists in order that the will of God might be done among us as it is done in heaven. That we might take up our cross to follow in the footsteps of our Lord. We are a group of people gathering together, but we can only rightly be called a church when we are doing the things I've mentioned, submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord, giving glory to him who has called us, seeking to be pure as he himself is pure, doing the works that he has given us to do. And there are many so-called churches. There are many buildings and gatherings of people that wear the name church, but they are not, in fact, a church if they fail to do these things. Whatever they might call themselves, a church is only truly the bride of Christ when it belongs to Jesus, submits to him, glorifies him, is pure as he is pure, and labors to do what he has commanded. And all of this matters because the church is the beloved treasured possession of Jesus Christ. We are not our own. The reason you have value as a person is because God has assigned value to you. And we as believers are especially valuable in the eyes of God because Christ has chosen to treasure us as his. He's called us his own. He's chosen us for this purpose that we might belong to him and give glory to him. We did not make ourselves the bride. We would not have chosen this for ourselves, but rather God has made us the bride of Christ. And he chose us to be that bride even when we were unworthy of that title and that role, which means that we've been chosen by grace, which is why all of our desire and all of our praise should be directed towards the one who loves us and calls us his own according to his favor and kindness. By his mercy and his tenderness, we belong to him. And we are beautiful because his love is over us. And so as a result, when we think of ourselves before Christ as his bride, as a church, we should come to him then with an attitude of great humility. 
humility towards one another in this room because the only reason any of us are here is because God has covered us with his love and his kindness. We are united by the same grace, but then also humility towards the one who has redeemed us because we've never been worthy of the love that he's chosen to give us. He gives it in mercy. And we can make no demands upon this Lord who is the great groom of the church, our Savior, because we brought nothing to the relationship when he called us except the hideousness of our sin. And yet he loved us still. And we're humbled. We're humbled by his love. Now, I'm moving to point three in the handout. If you've been trying to follow along, you'll see that I'm not like, you know, pointing this out all along, but I'll I'll give you some anchors along the way. So, because it's grace and humility that unites us, we are one collective body. A body shares pains and pleasures. Where sickness infects one part of the body, it infects all the parts of the body. Where one suffers, all suffer together. Where triumph comes to one member of the body, all members experience that triumph together. And within that unity, we find a wonderful diversity, don't we? No two parts of this body are exactly the same. Kind of makes things adventurous and fun, a little bit crazy. But we're one bride made of many members, each doing their own part to create a singular beautiful form in the eyes of God that pleases the bridegroom. And because then we belong to one body and we belong to Christ and we belong to one another, we are sick and we are ill as a body when our members think first and foremost of themselves and not of one another. We're here for one another even as we're here for Christ, to pray for each other, to support each other, to encourage each other, to spur one another on towards greater love and good deeds. And so we actually, do you understand this? You actually seek your own good. You benefit when you seek the good of the others in this room because we're united to one another. Another way to think about this is we are all sheep of one fold where Jesus is our great shepherd caring for the souls of our flock. And we've been made to dwell together in one fold, required to drink from the same stream of grace, required to eat from the same bread of life. And when we do this, sometimes we bump and jostle against one another. Haven't you experienced that? Yeah, that happens when the sheep are all gathered together. But we do that even as we listen to the same great voice that tenderly soothes us, even in those moments of distress. But although Christ is our groom and he is our shepherd, he is closer to us yet even still because we as the church are called the temple of the Spirit of God, which means that God dwells in us. Not merely individualistically, which is something that we do talk about quite a lot as Christians, and that is true, but do you understand Christ dwells in us when we dwell together? Each of us a stone constituting a great cathedral built to God's eternal magnificence. No one of us 
is sufficient in ourselves to be a temple for the spirit of this God that cannot be housed in buildings made by human hands. But think about this. When we gather together, when we are a body, each of us representing the spirit of God as a stone in this temple, then we come a little bit closer to actually being the kind of edifice that could contain this God of infinite worth and measure. And there's no other organization, no other movement, no other idea that truly has the power that we have as the temple of God to change and transform stony human hearts. The church is the only organism containing the Spirit of God with divine power to transform human hearts that they might be brought from death in sin to life in God. That is profound. And of course, it's not our power which accomplishes this miracle. It is the power of God in us. The power of God's Spirit changing hearts that they might reflect the goodness and mercy of our Redeemer. This is the church. This is what we belong to. This is what we are building. This is what you are sacrificing for, to belong to, to participate in. And all of this is because God is at work. We see this in point five, that the church is holy and exclusively fed and nourished and sustained through the word of God. We need no other food. We need no philosophies of men, no advances of education, no addendums of thought, no ideas of modernity to improve upon the food which God has already provided for us in his word. The church feeds upon the word of God or the church becomes malnourished and starves and looks emaciated. This is why we preach the word. You know, maybe you've had the thought, and I've had it, that I wish my pastor was a little bit more entertaining on Sunday morning. But we don't seek to entertain people and leave you laughing but starving as you walk away from church. There's nothing wrong with being a humorous preacher, but the goal is not a therapeutic gathering of people on Sunday morning. Instead, the goal is to give you true spiritual food that comes to you through the power of God as he speaks from his word. And we are united to one another yet again by this common food that we all feast on, hopefully more than just Sunday morning, but every day of every week. Because our fellowship is blood-bought and it is blood-bound, as Scripture teaches us to understand it is the blood of Christ that has secured the salvation that we have, and it is the blood of Christ that binds us together. Have you ever thought, looking around this room, man, what do I have in common with that person? You have the blood of Christ. Do not think for a second that it is merely the geography because you live in Maricopa or your preference for a certain style of worship or the lighting in the room or your pastor or your friendship that binds you with the other people in this room, it is none of those things. Beyond the veil of this material world in the spiritual realm which we cannot see, 
We are spiritually lashed firm to one another through the blood of the cross. Which means that when we are at enmity with one another, when we are at odds with one another, we poison that precious flow of grace that runs to us from the wounds of Christ. And we grieve the Spirit who binds us. Because it's not natural terms that bind us together. It is God who binds us. This is why we must continually seek to be reconciled to one another. Because we're bound by His blood. And we believe that His blood has the power to bind us, actually. And so when we are united in love for one another, we magnify the work of our God who has the power to bind together stones that would not naturally ever fit together. And yet by His power, He fits together to build an edifice for His joy, for His glory, by His power alone. And the church has been entrusted with a great guardianship to operate as the herald of sin and salvation and second coming. While our Savior has left to be with the Father, gone to heaven to make preparation for us for the day when we are invited to join Him, for now the church remains here, not by accident, Rather, we remain with this purpose in order that we might boldly broadcast to this world that it is in sin, and therefore it is in ruin. It is in a disastrous place. Man is under the wrath of God because of this sin, and people must repent of this sin or they will perish. This is what we proclaim, but we also herald good news, which is that through Christ the bride has received salvation, grace, forgiveness, and all people are invited to come and join the bridal party, taking on the robes of righteousness that the groom offers to them, that they might be plucked from beneath the crushing weight of sin and instead brought into the tender embrace of the Savior. And we declare also that Christ the King is coming again and He is coming soon. And on that day He will separate the wheat from the chaff. He will make a division between the righteous and the unrighteous. He will come to judge the living and the dead that His, his people might dwell with Him forever in peace and joy. And so as the church we herald the coming of our Lord. These are the greatest truths known to man, and they've been given to us, entrusted to us, that we might make them known. And so we proclaim these things in public. We broadcast it on YouTube. We don't hide in basements. We meet here and we speak publicly with no embarrassment, not softly with shame. We speak plainly and loudly that all might hear this message that Jesus Christ is true and there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And our proclamation, but also our lives, act as a testimony to the truth of our Savior. And so the church shines like a great spotlight 
in the darkest of night, a a searing, radiating light that makes the darkness tremble. We don't tremble as the darkness presses. We shine and the darkness trembles at the power of the bride of Christ. And this light, as it um, shines in the darkness, it doesn't burn or scald people where it shines. Rather, it invites It's a warm and tender light. It invites all who see it to come and find that there is refuge in the rock of Jesus Christ. Our message to a weary and broken world, burdened and heavy laden by sin and by shame, is for people to come and find rest and find hope, find healing. We proclaim to this world That Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world. No, the world is already burdened by its own condemnation. What we proclaim is that Christ came into the world in order that people might be saved, renewed, made whole. That they might find a sanctuary in heaven where they have peace with God and peace in their souls. That's the message we've been entrusted with. That's precious. And the church that we are part of is transcendent. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than this moment in history. It has endured unlike any other organization known to man for 2,000 years under the banner of Christ's resurrection. And it is the only organization that you can belong to where you will continue to be a living member even after you die. And do you understand that even now the church includes innumerable angels in heaven standing before the throne of God who are cheering this sermon as it declares the glory of Jesus Christ in his bride, the church. And it includes the faithful saints who have come before us, those Christians who labored ahead of us, that we might be reminded through their faithfulness of God's goodness. And therefore, because the church is transcendent and supernatural, it is invisible. Thank God that the church is not this crummy building with its creaky roof and the birds that nest up in the eaves. And you know what? The church is not the building that we hope to build someday either as we raise funds. That's not the church. The church, you need to understand, is not even necessarily the people in this room because the church exists supernaturally in the hearts of men. And we cannot truly see your heart. Which means that there are probably some of you in this room right now who, although you're gathered with us, you are at church. You actually don't belong to this thing that I'm talking about. You're not a member of the body of the bride of Christ. Because in your heart, you are not actually converted. God has not yet done the surgery to remove your stony, dead heart and put inside of it the heart of flesh. You have not repented of your sins. And if that's you, then I pray that the Spirit of God is opening your eyes to all that you're missing. And that right now, in this moment, you would repent and join us. Join our fellowship. 
Because to belong to the church does not mean you attend a Sunday morning worship service. It means that you have been spiritually and supernaturally raised from death to life through the gift of the new heart which Christ has put within you. And we can't see that work with our eyes. We can see the fruit of it. And so in a sense, then, the church is invisible, taking root in hearts. But the church is also visible, right? Because the people of God, they come together like we do to proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. And that's what you see here this morning. And where the people of God gather together, the visible church is seen in the lives of God's people. It's heard in their songs. It's felt in their praise. It's manifest in their love. It's tasted in their communion. It's tested in their fellowship. That's what we do when we gather. And because the church is defined by supernaturally transformed hearts, the church has very clear boundaries. You need to understand that you are either part of the church or you are not. You are either a child of God and a member of his body or you are not. There's no halfway here. And therefore, sometimes it is necessary for the church to excommunicate imposters, wolves and flagrant sinners who parade among us in the trappings of Christianity, but who in fact have cold and dead hearts that are far from God. Now, we don't go hunting for those people, but when they reveal themselves in a heroic act of severe love, we throw them out of the sheep pen because the church does not and cannot belong to them if they don't belong to Christ. And having said that, though, we must yet humbly recognize that because there is still remaining sin in all of us, the church is also a refinery. We are not quick to excommunicate people. We don't desire that. We are not eager to put people beyond the safety and the boundary of the church. We desire that all people would be as we are, members of the body of Christ. And so we treat one another with patience, with long-suffering, because we recognize that each of us here are ever so slowly by the perfect design of God being refined by the purging fire of the Spirit of God. We're not here because we are perfect, but we are slowly being made perfect as God grows this mustard seed of our faith into this sprawling tree of righteousness for His glory. We're being changed in, into the image of Christ as the dross of our sin that slowly rises to the top in this refining fire is skimmed away by His mercy. And so we're learning, each of us, to put into practice the kingdom of God. That's what we're doing here. We're practicing the kingdom of God, learning to do God's will in our lives here on earth as it is done in heaven. And because the church is a refinery where we practice the kingdom of God, we expect that the church will make great demands upon us. I hope you recognize that. 
Christ expects much from his bride. In fact, Christ expects impossible things from his bride that become possible only by the Spirit of God and the grace that he gives us. Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, as I am perfect. That's impossible unless grace and the Spirit empower you to walk in holiness. Jesus expects us as his bride to give our time and our resources to his work in the church. He expects us to give our hearts and our lives. He expects us to give up our love for sin and give up the hatred that we often feel for other people which secretly lurks still in our hearts. He expects us to give up our pride and our selfish ambition. He even expects, my friends, for us to give up our precious children or mothers or fathers or biological siblings if any of them were to hate us because of our love for Christ. That's a great demand. He expects us to invest in heavenly things where moth and rust will not destroy our treasures as we forsake all of the foolish things that men pursue because the church has been entrusted with the stewardship of souls. Nothing in all of creation is as weighty as the human soul. And the rock of Christ and the edifice of the church is the only thing that can bear the weight of the human soul. The church exists that our souls might flourish in the shadow of the Almighty instead of perish in pursuit of vanity. And so because the human soul is such a significant thing, we teach and we admonish and we exhort one another even as we also pray for one another in order that none of us might fall prey to the deceit and wander off from the church in pursuit of lesser things. And we know that all of our efforts, all of our work to treasure the church, to see it flourish, that in all of these things, success is guaranteed because Jesus told us that the church is an already victorious army. We will storm the gates of hell in obedience to our commander and our king and general. Even the gates of hell will not prevail in repelling the lordship of Jesus and the authority of his church. The authority of the church includes even what is beyond the gates of hell. Authority that has been given to the church because the church is the bride of Christ. And Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And don't you see, from all appearances, the church looks like such a little thing. I mean, again, look around this room. Doesn't it seem so insignificant? Here we are, cobbled together in this crummy gym that for three weeks hasn't even had working bathrooms. We are despised by men. Many people, Mother's Day, are at home making breakfast, sleeping in in their pajamas, thinking that that's like the highest thing you can do on a Sunday morning, wondering why in the world would anybody put on a collared shirt and go to church. Here we are pooling our meager resources together to care for one another, to gather together, often stricken, smitten, and dismayed by a world that mocks our allegiance to Jesus. Doesn't this seem like such a small thing? But I assure you, that this is indeed no small thing. 
Do not be deceived by what your eyes perceive. Because no army, no nation, no philosophy, no idea, no power known to man has any authority that comes even close to the authority which Jesus has entrusted to his bride, the church. God moves and works among men in this world through the authority of his church. And there is no power which can stand against that authority. It's not our authority, though we do wield it. It is the authority of Christ. Because the church is established by him, the cornerstone. This is his work. And because it is his work, it will endure even through death and even through resurrection. And Christ, the cornerstone, has built his church upon the foundation and the teaching of the apostles, the teaching which they received from Jesus Christ himself, which they recorded in Scripture for your benefit, that you too might have this teaching. Their words are his words because he gave them to the apostles, such that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable that the people of God might be like a wise man building our lives upon the firm foundation of Christ the rock. And so then the church is ever enduring, invincible, unassailable, precisely because we are the bride of Christ. And he is risen and his word endures forever and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now, I should end there. That was a lot even though I just scratched the surface. But I can't finish quite yet. First, I have to say, don't you want to be part of this? Doesn't your heart long to be part of this? I mean, this is why Maricopa Springs is here. Again, do not be deceived by what your eyes behold in this room. This is why our church is here that you might find through our particular congregation the church of Jesus Christ in all of its power submitted to our Lord for his glory, for his purposes. Don't you want to stop merely attending church? Don't you want to taste everything that Christianity truly has to offer? through Christ? Doesn't your soul long to participate in this body that I described? If so, then do something about it. If you're not a part of the church and you haven't repented, then make it today that you repent and believe and place your faith in Christ. Or maybe you've been just hanging around the edges, kind of wondering like, eh, church, I don't really get it. Move and act. Do something. Serve. Participate. Pray, invest in other people. Don't just come to church. Become the church with us. Let me close with this one thing. In a physical sense, marriage has a unique purpose among humanity. Do you know what it is? It has a unique contribution to the world. It is procreation. Marriage naturally leads to the birth of children and the establishment of families, and generations upon generations of that family. Friends, I want you to understand that one other reason why 
Jesus is called the groom and the church is called the bride is so that we might bear the fruit of spiritual children for the glory of God. Don't you see that in a spiritual sense, the union of Christ to his bride is supposed to lead to generation upon generation of the family of God. The church is not a barren, sterile bride. Let me say that again. The church is not a barren, sterile bride. She is wonderfully fruitful. With all power and all authority given to us by Christ, the church is to bear spiritual children for the glory of Christ. All of the wonderful aspects of the church that I just spoke about, they are not to be selfishly hoarded by us. They are to be given liberally to those who don't yet have those gifts in order that the halls of heaven might be bursting with the people of God who praise the name of Christ. And if we do all these other things that I've mentioned over the last like hour, but we don't labor to bring more spiritual sons and daughters into the kingdom of God, then I would say as his bride, we are not fulfilling the obligation to our king. Because the church also exists to reach the lost and make disciples, to give spiritual birth to those who will inherit all that the king possesses. So that the prophecy of Revelation 7-9 might be fulfilled when it says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Memorize that because you're going to sing it one day if you belong to the bride.